So welcome to It's Not All About The Numbers, the leadership podcast that doesn't just focus on the bottom line. Hello, my name is Chris and that is Mike. Hi, everyone. And today our co-host is Giuseppe Salazzo, who is Head of Data Product and Services at the Department of Work and Pensions and also an open data activist. Hello, Giuseppe. Hello. So let's just jump straight in. Obviously, if you want to subscribe and give us five stars, that's all great. But let's just jump straight into our weeks. How's your week been, Mike? Uh, so this week I've been ill. So I'm pretty sure that last week you mentioned being ill on the podcast. And I think somehow down the line, I've caught something off you. Um, so yeah, been a bit rough this week. Oh, it- is it the uh, uh, the telecoms conspiracy theory <laughs> that that's passing viruses around everywhere? Quite, quite possibly. Um, I had to, I had to, uh, had an appointment for a diabetes catch up with the, the, the hospital and I, it definitely got called man flu, man flu by a clinical expert. And I'm a bit, dis- I was a bit disappointed with that. Um, so, yeah, so, so in terms of work this week, it's been a little bit lighter than normal because I've not been, not been great, but I did manage to go to Bournemouth on Wednesday to meet with a uh, former co-host Matt Buck. And we had a, a good walk on the beach on, uh, and the catch up on, on Wednesday, which was nice. So Mr. Mr. Drawism, Drawism, Mr. Journalism. Yeah. Journalism. So, Good stuff. Giuseppe, how about yourself? Busy well, in not, government? Not, not being a light. I mean, as you know, we're approaching the end of the financial year. We're at that beautiful time of the year in which, you know, you, you have basically to bid for budgets and all sorts of things. So it's been actually a very interesting week because I've been catching up with my teams about the, the work they're doing. I mean, some of my teams do some amazing stuff. You know, they do that data matching behind the cost of living payments, for example, which is something, you know, blows my mind, really. Um, but yeah, a lot of that has been catching up, planning, and and nonetheless, let's say work life. I've also had a bit of a catch up with the uh, Michael Nodis, the the Open Data Camp folks. Uh, we've been discussing where to do the next one. Yeah, so it's been a bit of a mixture of of, of these things. So any in, any inside track? Any inside track on possible locations? Is there well, is there a short list? I'll, I'll tell you this. So uh, that's a riddle. <laughs> one of the possible locations, so the very likely location, is in one of the locations where my employer has an office. I go to. So, yeah, uh, 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 that doesn't limit it that much, but yeah, fair this, enough. This Milan, you can obviously or, FOI that though, so it's, this, you know, it's obviously a bit of an insight for data people on how to get that information. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like that's not the one that you went to last week, Mike. Um, you were there's another. There's more. Yeah, no, that was yeah. GovCamp. GovCamp last week. Okay. So no, Open Data Camp is different, similar <laughs> but different. Okay, all sounds like fun. Yeah, lots of people playing with data, and we're gonna. Dig into that, Giuseppe, because it sounds like you've been having a, a ton of fun uh, with everything from AI to to data. So, uh, yeah, my week, yeah, before the pod, we were talking a lot about Depeche Mode, I have to say. <laughs> we had, um, yeah, great, great weekend at Depeche Mode. <laughs> Absolutely loved it. Uh, re-energized for the week, um, even though I think, yeah, you're right. Last week I was a bit low energy. So, um, yeah, kicked the week off really strongly. Had some client meetings. Uh had a four-hour round trip to one meeting, which I then had to abort because of the train strikes, which was a bit of a nightmare. Um, thank you, train strikes. I attended a couple of NED meetings as well, which is which is all good. Bit of training, bit of governance, bit of governance. That word that no one likes, but we have to have to do it. Do you need to explain what an, a NED meeting is? Because it could mean multiple things to multiple people. <laughs> well, it's not it's not the NED hotel uh, where, you know, data camp might be or whatever. No, it's not a city hotel. It is the uh, non-exec director role that I have. Um, and yeah, just just play governance on that as a 
ex-CFO and ex-transformation uh, lead. So help help out where I can there. So uh, moving on, what happened this week? We we saw uh, Mr. Musk back in the news, Mike. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I picked I picked this one out as something to talk about. I, I was um, interested to see Elon Musk moving the the uh, Tesla from Delaware to Texas in the US, largely as a result of him having his fifty five point eight billion pound pay package cancelled by a judge, um, which. You know, seems seems a bit extreme, right? So it's it's quite a good good re- remuneration package that he's got there. He negotiated it in 2018, all related to share price and profitability. But what was really interesting in there is that one Tesla shareholder who holds nine shares challenged um, that amount of money going to to Elon Musk, um, and the same judge who forced Elon Musk to buy Twitter cancelled the, um, the 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 payment, um, and as a result. Elon took to Twitter or X as it's now called um, and said, should we move from Delaware to Texas? And and the vote came out. Yes. And he has, which I thought was fascinating. I just thought it was really interesting that when you've got more money than sense, you can basically do what the hell you like. Transformation just means you just do what you want. Um, So it was just, I I, I quite like the the use of, uh, of the poll uh, on, on X. Cause yeah, like you said, it had over a million votes or something. And um, so pretty, Pretty conclusive uh, decision to move. Certainly, does, statistically significant, right? I mean, you, it you, is. You, well, I'd say can. with a million, you never. Well, as long as they're not bots, um, which is also possible. But good use of data. Do you think? I'm just reflecting. Like, you know, if you move a company from one jurisdiction to another jurisdiction, you know, it would be a nightmare to do that in in a slightly you know smaller place like the UK. I can't imagine what that means in terms of you know the US, like where you obviously have federal law and different taxes per state and you know it, it must be a nightmare, but you know obviously that there's if you have money to throw the problem, uh which is obviously not the luxury we often have in government, um you, you can obviously uh get a lot done, I suppose. I wonder whether there's something else behind it because he does have a a massive car factory in Texas already. So yes. maybe he was, maybe he was one step ahead of everybody and saying, "Well, actually, how do I make this a non-political decision uh, to move from California to Texas? I'm going to cause a problem for the judge to then make me do it." So maybe there's some genius in there. I don't know. So what else? Uh, we've got the fantastic Giuseppe Salazzo here today, and. Mike shared an article with me. I don't know quite how to put this, but let's talk toilets. Is this right? <laughs> uh, we need to we need to start by talking about open data and its very very everyday uses. D- tell me more about the toilets. So he actually an interesting thing here. It, 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 that article is probably it's the. The Open Data Delusion is an article I wrote probably about ten years ago now, a bit less maybe, and that was on a. Uh, online magazine about international development called aptly Broken Toilets. At the time, government was trying to get behind the open data agenda, and a lot of you know, many of us were involved on, on both sides. I mean, uh, Mike and I have obviously, obviously swapped. Uh, he was a civil servant at the time. I was the activist. And there was this idea that open data could you know, be the catalyst of all sorts of things. The cabinet office at the time did this actually quite good, I think, in terms of engagement. Said, okay, we're going to create this mechanism for people to request their favorite data sets. And the general idea was, well, people are going to be asking data sets about transparency. You know, that turns out that the, the, the highest requested data set was actually the, the location of public toilets, which is a very 
mundane need. Um, but with you know interesting twists there. I mean, I I did a talk last year where I actually explained this. Like toilets, obviously, you know, the, the mere concept make us make us laugh. But in reality, behind this, there was someone called Gail Ramster, who was a researcher doing um, standards research about toilets. So if you are someone uh, who could be uh, disabled, for example, looking for a toilet, probably what you need is accurate information about what public toilets are around you and what sort of needs they can cater for. And yeah. there's none of that. So, yeah, it's, it's as, an as a topic. As a father of young children, and, you know, they're, they're a bit older now, but trying to find a toilet in London when your kids are desperate was is an absolute nightmare. And, you know, not every shop or, or pub is as friendly as the next um so it, but i am i'm surprised it's the number one voted for that is interesting you know did you send it to a targeted audience yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a joke in there about is it the number one or is it the number two oh, I, I couldn't like, like almost almost resisted but couldn't <laughs> no i mean i was saying part of that might actually be urban myth but that became part of the thing like what people ask for is not what you think people will ask for which is one of the biggest lessons, I think, in open data, which Mike might probably talk a lot about from his environment agency days. So, uh, what, you know, what yeah. is is it sort of showing us that there's a there's a problem with, you know, open data sounds, in theory, like a great idea. What happened after that request came in? You know, was it immediately turned into a nice visualization that people could <laughs> click on and, you know, uploaded to, to Google Maps and then off we go? Uh, Obviously not is the answer. So uh, I think two things happen. So the first one is, first of all, uh, people's expectations of what public data means um, doesn't necessarily match the reality of what how that data is generated or, or, or collated. Because, of course, there's no individual government department for toilets. You know, obviously, no one collects that data in central government. If that data exists, and it doesn't always exist, um, will be with local authorities. Then obviously there's a question of definition. What is a public toilet? Is that a, uh, let's say, state-funded toilet, or is it uh, a toilet accessible by the public in, in any form of you know, even private business? Um, so that, that, I think, is the, the first recognition, basically, is that the fact that even thinking about that data set is actually hard to, to create. The second thing that happened was you know, always Gail Ramster here, she created the Great British Toilet Map, which was, at the time, a mixture of data collected by councils via mostly FOI requests, and the other half was actually crowdsourcing that data, so allowing people to fit in, and that's what actually remains today. So a very interesting exercise in citizen participation to a project. The th third thing that happened that is often forgotten about, however, was that the what is today the Ministry for Housing, Local Government and Communities, or whatever it's called at the time, was the Department for Communities and Local Government, actually started to work on, I think it was joint work with the LGA at the time, so Local Government Association. They invested some time in thinking about the standard, a data standard for representing local authority, let's say, controlled toilets. So that probably is still used somewhere. Probably local authorities are putting some energies and resources into populating those data sets these days a lot of it goes unnoticed that's something you triggered a, a thought so I, I mentioned walking down the beach with uh, with matt buck in in bournemouth the other day and we saw a sign on uh, one of the hoardings for the the refill i don't you you'll have seen like the, the water drop with refill written in it um you've probably seen it dot, dotted around 
And, and, and that's actually come from a project that I was involved, well, I, I wasn't involved with. I was involved in judging um, a, a geovation, an Ordnance Survey Geovation Award, which the refill project won um, five, five, 10 years ago. And effectively, it was a geospatial project um, where they basically used Ordnance Survey data, and then you could plot on a map where you could go and refill your water bottle. Simple as that. Um, and just sort of linking that through to, to the conversation around around toilets and open data, it's, it's almost like the need for knowing where you could refill a water bottle increased as we became more environmentally aware about the you know, the badness of having disposable water. So therefore, that kind of drove this need, and it, and it's made that quite a successful campaign. And it's almost it's this is the same, isn't it? it it's a very similar thing, which is the need for the data doesn't come from the government collecting it and having it as as a thing that it needs. The, the the data now exists because society has decided that it needs it and has collected it and crowdsourced it and put it together. I mean, of course, there's also the converse view to that, which is um, government will collect some data for its own needs. And the transparency, let's say, arm of the open data movement has always said, well, actually, that data should be released so that we can, first of all, scrutinize and challenge the government and... The other is, well, we could actually come up with the maybe better solutions sometimes. It's obviously a very delicate topic to, to debate because you know, both arms of the open data movement had quite you know, interesting debates about this all back in, back in the days. But yeah, I think that's also, from a government point of view, it's also the, the interesting question around um, data and policy. How are the two linked? I saw some of this when I was at the DFT about data that is collected for one purpose and then a, a sudden policy need um, you know tries to use for that new need and you realize that the data is not good enough I mean the, 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 the funniest example well funny in a way uh, was the the question I had about I used to run you know the NAPTAN the, the data set of bus stops in the country uh, which was a very interesting thing to run at the time but when the pandemic struck and one of my colleagues in the policy, bus policy team asked, can we have a list of all the bus stations in the country so we can put you know, posters about social distancing? And, and of course, the answer was, no, we can't because we never collected data about those. So we know where the bus stops are, but what is a bus station? Well, we don't know. We don't know that in the data, at least. Um, so obviously, the question there is, how can we link data and policy better if that is a requirement of our policy these days? Uh, is development is developed. Um, I, th yeah. I think it's it's a, it's a great point, and it, it's very relevant in in business as well. We try always try and bridge the gap when we have sort of a government expert on, and you know you highlight the the, the need there for the data and being data first. But if the data doesn't exist, then you know you have to go and get it. You need to go and wrangle it. You need to go and you know define what what you're trying to do with it. So should it be kind of policy first, using your words, or in in my world, should it be kind of demand driven business driven or should we just be trying to get something out of the data because there seems to be you know that we've matured a little bit i think you know there was this in business there was this talk for a need for data lakes and then we'd have these massive data lakes but we'd do nothing with them because we hadn't worked out what decisions we wanted to make right i mean to me it's all about agile really so in, in agile with you know with a slightly broader sense it's the fact that we need to understand that uh, in the 21st century uh, policy needs and operational needs evolve much faster than they used to in the past and that requires the data that is used for those purposes to evolve accordingly which means that you know sometimes you need to uh, you know 
question what kind of you know, data schema or data features you want to collect and whether you have the resources to collect them. Well, you know, sorry if I stick to the past example, just because it's the one I, I know the best, I've run it for a while, but there was in the DFT a sort of um, operator's body of people who would contribute to the evolution of bits of that uh, data standard. So there was something called transit change, which was embedded into some of that data from Naptan. And that, you know, how that standard was populated and, you know, interpreted by local authorities was debated at the central level and then shared in guidelines. And probably a unique example of that sort of engagement where you have a central government organization collecting data on behalf of, or vice versa, holding data collected by uh, local authorities. But that, I think, is a very good example of how uh, you keep data current and, and evolving. Once again, it's not a perfect example in, in many ways, but it, it, it's one that I, I've seen very, very close up uh, and it's still used. And, you know, it's, it's a data set that probably now has about 20 years of life behind it. Can I just ask, you know, why why you went into this field? Because uh, it's uh, like I said at the start, it sounds like in summary you've been playing with data and AI for you know ten years and having a lot of fun. Is that what motivated you first, or was there something a bit more? Yeah, you're asking me, are you a nerd? And the answer, of course, is yes. But no, there's a bit beyond that. So the, the thing geek. I have a background I'll go, I'll go of. With, I'll go with geek. That's fine. Geek, that's fine. Yeah, I mean, I, I stand by both, to be honest, but. Um, no, I mean, I obviously have a background in IT, I have a background in data, I used to um, to run, you know, transformation in hospitals where we were basically linking up machines uh, to databases. So that was my kind of early connection to data. I have to say that while I was working in IT, and this was in London, um, I realized that there was that interesting question about uh, how you connect to users. And often data to me became the catalyst of you know, making that connection. And um, a few things that happened, let's say in the early 2010s, uh, were all about, you know, can we use data for public purpose? And and so I, I found myself almost naturally, you know, doing that transition from, you know, IT person, geek, uh, in, in at the time of the medical school, which I actually, great years, I really enjoyed it but wanted to have a bit more of an impact on, on the public. Um, and so I, that's how I found myself in central government, basically. And VFT was my first gig in that space. Uh, that, that, that's, that's, really, that's really interesting, because the question I have bubbling in the back of my mind links back to something you said earlier around, you know, when we first met, we were the other way around, right? So I was in government <laughs> and you were on the outside throwing rocks. And then now I'm yeah. outside government and you're, you're inside. And actually, I mentioned to Chris when, when we were talking about, about this session, I think the first time I actually met you in person was when you pipped DEFRA to uh, an award at the Open Data Institute Summit back back in the day. And I was absolutely yeah, yeah. convinced <laughs> that we were going to win that award and you ended up walking away with it. Um, but but my, my my question my question it links sort of links to that shift right so you were always involved in open data you're still involved in open data but now you're working for a department that from the outside looking in is going to be have so much data that can't be shared or at least can't be shared because it's personal it's sensitive it's confidential all kinds of different things how do you square that what what what's that kind of person how do you personally square that kind of desire for openness against that kind of organizational structure that you've got there? I mean, from a personal point of view, I always like to see both angles. And it, which actually one of the things that got me to move into government was like, okay, I've been throwing rocks for a while, uh, but I also see other people throwing rocks. And you realize that sometimes you, you 
kind of build a persona around throwing rocks and that doesn't really solve any problem. Uh, so the question for me was, well, what is it like to be on the other side and trying to actually solve those problems? And with my, you know, activist hat, say, well, I, I'm, I know enough of this community to try maybe and build up a positive language around it and you know, find out allies inside and inside and outside, which, you know, up to a degree worked. But I also realize that some people need to have that, you know, uh, persona around them uh, in terms of being activists. And, and so you, you have to learn a lot about, in fact, when you're being attacked from the outside, that can actually give you strength on the inside. And, you know, if, if you learn to, to, you know, unpick those emotions and, you know, making sure that you, you can progress, that happens. I mean, to be honest, that happened to me a lot when I was in the NHS, of course, because nothing is as often controversial and confrontational as patient data and then that, you know, all that debate around using data, especially in, in my case, in the NHS for AI. And that, that I found not particularly difficult personally, but often bringing people with me on the inside. It's like, you know, we're doing these things and we get attacked all the time. How do we survive? And you know, not everyone wants to be on, on the attack line. DWP to me is, a, is it almost a, a going back to running, you know, the fixing the plumbing kind of thing. So I'm, I'm no longer involved in uh, directly, at least in, in, in AI or in any innovation. To me, well, Innovation in my context means making sure that our data processes are sound, that our data warehouses work, that everything is secure. That matters to me what I'm doing now. And of course, the DWP, as you say, is not necessarily the first player in, in open data as you know, maybe <laughs> there was in, in the time. So all that we do is around you know, personal data. So it's not an open data heavy department. That said, we do have quite large um, you know, data sets that we release as national statistics. A lot of national statistics coming from DWP um, are used by the ONS. You know, it's chunky stuff that gets published. That's really interesting and, and completely can see that. And I, I think it links back a little bit to the toilet conversation around the use case, right? So it, it's much easier to share data with others when you know where well, you've got an idea why. And I think that that was some of the some of the chal- the challenges were back back in the back in the day. It was just share share this data as open data. Why? Because you should, rather than why? Because it will do these things. And when you know what the things are, you can then start attributing value that's not financial to sharing that information. So there's, I, I really I, I really like that kind of link background to the to the the potential uses and use cases to show value. Yeah, although the question of value often requires. Here's my, you know, one of the key things I keep saying today. It's almost a multidisciplinary approach to data. So you need multidisciplinary approach to data to actually use the data, and that's another discussion. But also to understand what the impact is, because otherwise, the let's say the the, the general push is to put, you know, a, a value, a financial value, which doesn't always work, and that is not always uh, easy to assess. I mean, and obviously that happens. Partly because it's how we tend to, you know, evaluate human activity and innovation. I mean, I, you know, remember back in the days there was that famous McKinsey report with the three million of open data. Now, interestingly, these days there is another McKinsey report about the I can't remember the figure, but it's very similar for AI. And to me, that is almost, you know, indicative of the evolution of hypes. Uh, but at the same time, it, it's something we 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 can do without, if, if you know, especially from a central government point of view, thinking. It's really hard for us to assess the financial benefit of data. We can't start looking at other things. Conversely, you should probably speak to um, Davin uh, Crowley-Sweet, who's the chief data officer at Highways England, who's been really into the space of, can we 
put a value to our data sets and our data sets are you know re representing road assets so that there is a kind of argument to be made there to say well some data can have a financial value and should be now you uh, on, on, on the balance book now now you're getting into my world because that's been a debate in the accountancy world for quite a while can can we uh can we actually give a value to all these and intangible assets <clears throat> because they're talked about and they're bought definitely in the markets, but uh, are we actually able to value them? That's a different thing. I, ju I just want to say that felt quite cathartic as a listener there. I felt like, you know, you, you, you had some conflict in the past and now you're both over it, which is great to see. <laughs> um, I, I also think that, that there is something in there around, you know the some of the professional battles that you have um they they're good they're the right battles aren't they to be having and the relationships that last afterwards as a result of them are are enduring you know i i i have sort of consulting friends from my finance you know transformation days and you know we we fell out we we challenged each other we had to really you know get behind our own positions and challenge other people's positions um but whenever i see them you know in london or in the pub uh it's like chris it's so great to see you because you know they were the right sort of hard yards to be earning at that time so, so, so absolutely and i you know what you're touching on there is that kind of the, the open data side versus the government trying to keep closed side that uh, and and i think that linking it all, all the way back to kind of transformation change um trying to get people to change and think things differently it's all about understanding the other person's perspective and being willing to understanding and, and acknowledge it even if you disagree with it or even if you can't do the things that you're being asked to do you can at least understand it and have a sensible conversation and i think that in any kind of ne negotiation in any kind of like change any transformation that kind of skill to be able to put aside what you passionately believe to actually listen i think is is phenomenally important Love it, love it. I'm going to move the question. I move things on because that, that was a great chat, and I, I feel that we've just buried a hatchet. So it's, oh, great. Let's move on. <laughs> um, so it's at this point that we normally ask uh, a, a question. Um, so if you'd like to ask a question, questions to podcast at generationcfo.com or reach out to Mike and myself. Um, and th this is a, actually a really lovely segue into this question. Um, and Mike, ignore the one in the notes. Um, <laughs> so uh, Giuseppe, a couple of episodes ago we were talking about boardroom literacy data literacy uh digital literacy and i think you know when you were talking about the the, the toilet problem <laughs> um you kind of highlighted that the literacy issue there right you, you mentioned you know okay we want to do something about this but do we have the data and then when you start digging into the definitions of what you want then there is no consensus and then there's no understanding of agile and there's no understanding of you know data management and you know before we even get to ai right <laughs> um so the, the the question um is you're as an external advisor how do you find board level uh data literacy and and what do you do in that space 
So I have to say that that is actually a very interesting question because it's actually what brought me to be on those boards. Uh, because I realized at one point that it doesn't matter how senior or junior you are. And I remember one case, I was the only person without a title in front of my name, which was the best experience of my life. It's actually about bringing a certain level of technical knowledge sometimes. And technical knowledge is important. What we often lack as people who advise people from a technical point of view is the ability to link up to their needs, to the business understanding, to the, you know. And that is the direction I kind of learned to develop. Um, and I think we probably, you know, that is why I keep encouraging people with technical knowledge to invest on two things. On first of all, on self-confidence, because of course you you need to have a bit of you know daring you know, a, a approach to make sure that you, you know, pitch a board or something like that. And that, of course, you know, there's a question around uh, being a, you know, white man makes it easier than, than you know, for, for other communities. Uh, but the other is uh, not to be afraid to, to say, well, I'm a techie, but I need to challenge the way I present the way I, I speak, basically. That, that, that's all it. You know, you have to be able to connect to the language of the person you're speaking to. And that means being able to adapt your message. Um, so broadly speaking, that is the same, seen from the perspective of the advisor. Boards are becoming better at understanding their, say, uh, the, the knowledge they lack. But obviously, I have been on you know, very select organizations. So, you know, like the, uh, one of the ones I'm still a member of is the Royal College of Ophthalmologists. And, well, yes, they, they they are clinicians, but at the same time, they are clinicians who always use data in their life. So, you know, the level for them of uh, unknowns and unknowns in, in the technology space is much lower probably than for a, a, a general uh, a general company board. So I, I think, you know, my, my view of that is kind of limited to kind of very lucky uh, in selected organizations. Yeah, it's, I think it's one of those things where, literacy and you make a really good point around it's not about seniority it's not about um you know where you are in your career like there is a just a massive gap i think in terms of data literacy whether you are new to a board whether you've been there for, for 30 years and mike i know you talked about this in the past about you know the the, the hierarchy of business now is it's not about the boss having all the answers and that kind of points to this gap you know we need to be getting everybody up to speed um but we do we do have a habit of replacing you know data literacy with digital literacy and now it's ai literacy you know what what should we be trying we be trying to do at board level so so well so i'd add add to that that digital data ai literacy are the ones that we're talking about right but there's business literacy there there's financial literacy there's legal literacy, the HR literacy. So for every specialism that you have within a business, other people within the business should have a level of literacy that's relative to their level and what their job is for those things. So just because you're the CEO and you've got a HR advisor, you shouldn't delegate every single thought about HR and the management of people to your HR advisor. You've got to have some level of understanding and knowledge yourself. And it's no different for digital data, AI. It may be that those things are changing far more rapidly. So you have to keep more up to date. But I, I just I, I think that one of the one of the issues that I have personally is that people put it put data and digital into a box and put it over there and it's for somebody else. Whereas actually m m what I'm trying to say is 
I think everybody has an accountability that to 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 know something. And I, I mentioned last week the, you know, I, I was I was doing one of these liberating structures where you meet people really quickly and I met somebody hi I'm Mike I do datary stuff and they're like hi I'm whoever it is I do comms I don't know anything about data to which my immediate response is well well, how did you get here today and it's like well I looked in my calendar and I said yeah okay so you looked in your calendar so you know I had a meeting then then how did you know where to come oh well I looked on a map right okay so you looked on a map how do you know how to get here oh well I put 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 a thing into Google and I got on a bus. It's like, well, there you go. There's a whole series of data decisions that you've made. So you you are data literate. You know, you, you might not be a data nerd or a data geek, but you are yeah. data literate. And, and it's that bit. That's the bit for me that I think we struggle with is you need to know enough to know what you need to know. Yeah. But some of this is also the, the, the never-ending question of labels and of what's the, the you know the, the hype label. You know, because when I started my career, everyone wants to be a, a you know programmer, which when we call software engineer, then developer, then now as data scientist, engineer, AI, and you know all, all the rest of it. And the reality is that a lot of what we do evolves, and a lot of the way we describe it evolves. But the fundamental uh, work that we do is kind of always similar. We're trying to deliver outcomes based on. Uh, some level of information and, and how we process that information is changing all the time. Interestingly, linking back to toilets, when I was talking to, to Gail, you know, when, when I wrote that article, she made this very, very interesting comment about why local authorities have problems collecting data about toilets. And uh, the reason was, she said, well, because they don't know whether to assign that task to the toilet people who don't understand much about data or to the data people, usually GIS people, who don't understand much about toilet standards. And that is, I think, perfectly capturing the thing that you know we work in often in silos. And that those to break those silos, we need to understand that we we got to a stage in society in which we need to understand the links and the connection to other you know areas of uh, of knowledge, basically. Exactly. The only thing I would say to add to that is it's not about breaking the silos. It's the second bit that you said. It's the links. It's the links, links. between yeah. that we need to understand. The silos are fine as long as there are links between. And it sounds back to it's back to plumbing and toilets. It's all there. It's all there. <laughs> yeah. It's all there. I love this. Yeah. Sorry. Toilets will appear in the title. Um, so and just to round that question off about the your external advisor roles, you know, how, how did you did you get those roles? Because within my network, there's a there's a lot of people looking for those non-exec roles or those advisory roles. They, they're very experienced people in their field and they're looking to do that. So the first one actually was the, the famous open data user group. Uh, and how I found myself on, on that is that I, I suppose, I, you know, I was working on the right thing at the right time, really, because I was looking at open access and open data from an academic point of view. So I was a an IT bot in a medical school. And basically the sort of things I was developing and the, the sort of discussions I was having were 100% matched with what was happening in government. So when I when I sent my profile, basically that was an easy an easy match to to have. Um, and through that, you know, I started kind of developing also my, my language uh, because I, I suppose what you find out when you go to one of those uh, entities almost, it, it's the fact that you will find different people from different backgrounds around the table, all with a common interest. Uh, and the way they link themselves to that common interest is very different. Uh, so at, at the time, you know, I got to know the the, the great Bob Barr, who's a geographer, uh, who obviously 
sees a lot of the open data through the, the lenses of a geographer and to, you know, the, obviously this big battle was the one around the postcode address file. But then you have people like Ian McGill, who's a uh, founder of Spend Networks, or someone who's trying to run a business out of uh, transparency-driven data. So all these people obviously would be relating to the open data concept in different ways. And that, I think, was the why I found that experience quite powerful for me, although, you know, Achievement-wise, some people have been very critical of how much we achieved, really. But I, I think, you know, I, I like to think that we managed to stay at that conversation for a while while uh, open data was up in the agenda. And that's been always my kind of thing in the uh, in the other organization I've been an advisor of, is always deploy your knowledge, but also try and understand what are the other angles uh, in the room and try and be the, the bridge between those angles. Sounds great. Some great, great advice in there. And uh, yeah. Putting your hand up and as an expert and definitely uh, meeting your audience where they are is going to be critical to keeping a seat at any board table. Um, That's it, Chris. Um, not very data, but I also had experience as a, a charity trustee uh, and the charity had to be put into liquidation. This was a charity I really believed in and it was an incredibly traumatic experience. And and once again, I think the thing I realized on, on that board was that there were different ways of seeing how the charity was doing, uh, which became really, at one point, quite obviously, we had to basically shut down. There was no money to go on. Um, and you realize also that the, 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 you know, the, the emotional impact that that can have on, uh, on people. So yeah, it, I think the whole question around advisory is always about thinking about the goods and the bads. And if you are a data person, you are probably you know, a step ahead in understanding the goods and the bads. Yeah, well, it, it it does come up in some of my work, um, and uh, it, you know, I I'm constantly looking for the right information. You know, not all of the information, just the right information, and and challenging people, and and that's quite interesting because you know people are very set in their ways when it comes to corporate reporting or board reporting or or reporting to trustees. You know, so I'm I'm a bit of a bit like yourself, a bit of a bi and visualization. Uh, geek um which leads me neatly onto uh good data bad data um because here we dig into um some of the data of the week uh and mike you had we're not going to go all sporty again are we this week uh, we've got to a little bit right oh, so right. so a couple of weeks ago we spoke with uh with chelsea so chelsea obviously made us talk about football although i think i started it um but today's the day the six nations kicks off so it's got to be we've got to touch on rugby today so the data that i wanted to draw is that so there's five new captains in the six nations this year mm -hmm. um so the only one there's no new without a new captain is italy england have got five debutants um which all leads to two months of angst if you support rugby at all <laughs> um but but today is the last day that it's all good data on Six Nations because every team is on zero points. Nobody's lost yet. Everybody can still win the Grand Slam. So that's kind of like my the data bit. But what I wanted to ask you to you both actually is who's going to be the most missed player in this Six Nations? So loads of people have retired after the World Cup. I'm going to throw that at you guys. Who's going to be the most uh, missed well, player? I, I don't know whether Giuseppe's a rugby fan, so I'm going to step in. Oh, so I know, I know he it. is. Oh, he is. Okay. <laughs> the most missed player. So I I think um, it's got to be a, a fly half, and the fly halves have moved on, and I I actually think it's going to be um, 
sexton of ireland because as old as he is and let's face it we've got a bit of gray in our beards you know we have a huge amount of value to offer uh, so I think it will be Sexton of Ireland and tonight it's France Island. So let's see. Nice link. Seppi. <laughs> I have to admit, I haven't been following closely rugby for a oh. while, but no, I'm definitely a rugby fan. Uh, and actually uh, you were mentioning that Italy has the same captain. I mean, I'm kind of still surprised that Italy can, can still compete. I mean, it's been quite sad for, uh, for Italy <laughs> for a while. Although, as you know, I support Wales in, in rugby. Uh, and I think oh, obvious, obviously, well. right? Obviously, obviously. Yeah, yeah, that's a long story about that, but uh, let's not get there. <laughs> but I think Leo Fenny retired. Was it last year, two years ago? I mean, I've lost track of time. Uh, he's no longer play with the national team, and that I think is uh, it's been a big loss. I, I, I mean, I mean, great, great calls. I'm surprised neither of you said uh, Anton Dupont, who's not retired, but he's not playing in the Six Nations. So he's, he, he's off he's, to the sevens, isn't he? To he's, be he's, a glory boy in the Olympics. He wants to win a gold medal at the Olympics. Yeah, yeah. Let's wait Yeah, absolutely. So that that was that was like what one of the good datas. But the the other one, which is like a little bit more serious, that I wanted to mention was um, that this well, twenty twenty three China overtook Japan as the number one car exporter in the world. So that that might not sound like a a big thing, but the, when you actually look at the the, the numbers japan exported 4.42 million vehicles in 2023 which was up 16 percent on 2022 china exported 4.91 million vehicles which was up 58 percent on 2022 so it's incredible it's incredible the capacity and i think I, i so I haven't got any data on this, but anecdotally, I heard something that, that we'll all be looking at getting our cars from China at some point very soon from a Chinese manufacturer because they're way ahead of the game in terms of uh, e-vehicles um, and you know developing the technology behind electronic vehicles. So not electronic, electric vehicles. So yeah, there you go. There's my, there's my good data. Nothing wrong with the Ferrari though, is there? Well, not if you're <laughs> Lewis Hamilton, no. <laughs> Good stuff. I uh, yeah, I'm still not sure. You know, it's phenomenal growth, but I'm still not sure. Um, about, I'm not a big car geek, if I'm honest. Um, I like to use my feet as much as I can, um, but I'm not aware of a lot of the Chinese brands. I really need to to get into that. Uh, so I, I actually had a quick look before, and I think the only one you probably would have heard of is MG, and the rest of them, the rest of the brands are all pretty kind of unusual. Uh, Yes. Okay. So acquisitions as well. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Well, yeah, I won't be getting an MG anytime soon. I'm way too big for those little cars. <laughs> um, bang my head on the roof. And Giuseppe, you, you tell us a bit more about your newsletter because you, you do some great data viz um, in your newsletter and Mike has well, borrowed I'll do them myself. A... I, I, I link to them mostly. I mean, I do some occasional data mm. work. You know, uh, these letters has been almost something I've done on the side for now, I mean, 12 years, 11 years. I mean, yeah, it's, it's been a long time. I started in 2012, I think. And it was just an attempt for me to basically close Chrome tabs. Uh, I have way too many, you know, tunnels that I follow. In doing a newsletter, you know, helping me coalesce the reason why something was interested has become a bit the thing and, and I keep doing it with pleasure. I mean, aside from you know the fact that it, it's created some opportunities for me that work wise, but it, it it's quite good for me to keep staying up to date. 
And I realized that there's a community of people who follow me and we have chat with some people and with some people now send me links and then, you know, I even have, you know, companies pitching things to me, which was really, really weird. Uh, but journalists I'm regularly in touch with about, you know, what's happening in the data world. Um, you know, I, I mentioned journalists specifically because I think data journalism has done a lot of good things in the space of data visualization and in the way data can be used to, to tell a story. Um, and you know, you know, in government we don't always get along well with journalists, I have to say. But it, it, you know, it's a community that I think inspires us. Looking, you know, people working with data. So yeah, uh, big shout out to, to them. Mike, did you want to have a quick dig into global warming? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm um, so in your newsletter this week. I think it was the first or the second item. There was something uh, around an article you linked to around global warming and visualization around global warming. So I picked out a chart, one of the charts. Um, and the thing that I thought was really interesting in this chart was the the the, the rate of increase in global warming. Um, and there's the, 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 I mean, it's the chart we've all seen, right? So it's up until 1960, it's kind of relatively slow. And then it global warming looks like it's been accelerating. But the conclusion I found, um, amusing is not quite the right word. I found it, I found it, so it was informative. So it's, the, the, the rate of uh, warming has been near zero from 1950 to 1970, then about 0.02 degrees a year until 2010, and then nearly 0.03 years uh, uh, degrees a year since then. But the, the thing that I found interesting and, and, and amu slightly amusing was there's uncertainty in the specific rates, but the statistical tests confirm that global warming is picking up speed, which is absolutely something I think we all know. Um, and the data, the data is there that absolutely shows this. So we, we need we we need to take action. Interestingly, on this, I heard I heard Bill. Sorry, sorry, Gunter. No, just a very quick thing. That chart you mentioned is one with the average temperature, yeah. which of course is very good by in, in itself. The one thing I'm very interested in, however, is how that in a way hides the extremes and you know, the variance of those average temperatures, which yeah. actually are almost a story in themselves because it's what relates way more to people's lives you know like the fact that we have now i mean you 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 probably know so much and more than i than i know that there's a lot of flooding happening frequently there you know that it that links to the problem of extreme events uh which of course the average only partially captures so yeah it, it's obviously a very interesting topic but also a very interesting debate to be had about what's the right way of representing that problem through data yeah no you're absolutely right uh, that and I think that, you know, again, anecdotally, we're seeing more extreme events, right? That it, it feels it feels like there are more extreme events happening. The thing I was just going to mention is that um, I heard an interview with Bill Gates. It was a rest is politics interview interview with Bill Gates, um, and he's basically saying we've got to give up. We give up on two degrees. We're going to hit two degrees. We're going to get there. We need to just make sure we don't go past three degrees. We need to do stuff. We can adapt. And it was just a really interesting message, and I think it, it's it's it sort of touches on your point about the extremes, but it also is, Eve. You know, the world's not going to end if we hit two degrees warming. Things, things we can still do stuff, and we should be still doing stuff to make sure we're mitigating and taking action. So that that was what I took from that was like a real, almost like a call a call to action. We've got we we've still got, it's getting worse, but we've still got time to do stuff. It's always good and bad, right? There's there's bad data, but it's good visualization, and I I quite like it. It's, but a, bad, it's a it's a scary <laughs> message, yeah. <clears throat> I, I I think I 
want to be a data journalist you know i i, I there's that some of the best podcasts that i listen to are basically data journalism and i think there's there's so much data out there or maybe not if you talk to the government but um there is a lot of data out there uh to dig into but but that was a bit doom and gloom um so we'll lift it up a little bit and just say uh giuseppe thank you very much for your time and your insights today uh that was brilliant uh, you've had a fantastic career and i'm sure you're huge value to all of your um companies on the advisory side of things um i uh, would also like to finish with uh, some good data saying, I know this goes out sort of a little bit later, but dry January is over. So everyone can celebrate tonight uh, with a glass. So if you did that, <clears throat> then well done. If you didn't, I, then probably even better. I heard, I heard somebody yesterday talking about exactly that. And they, they, they remember the old rhyme, 30 days has September, April, June, etc. Yeah. He said, he said they've revised it to saying that January's got 4,331 days if you're doing dry January. And I thought that, that <laughs> kind of sums it up. That is exactly how it's felt. It's, and that's kind of how this week's felt. So it's good to sign it off. Um, but just every thank, thanks again. I really appreciate your time um and where can people find you oh thank you for having me first of all well i'm on you know social media for now i'm i'm pontifice on most of social media i'm on linkedin with my my name and surname and my website pontifice.net where you can find links projects my newsletter and all that and that that's where you'll be able to sign up to the newsletter as well is it thank you again uh thank you from me thank you mike thanks very i couldn't thank I you got that wrong <laughs> <laughs> thanks everyone <laughs> and remember it's not all about the numbers